Thanks again for being here for the benefit of our guests in particular. Um, our lead pastor, Matt Rawlings, is currently on sabbatical with his family, um, receiving some much need rest and just looking for a time to be renewed. Um, a wonderful time just to spend a lot of time together as a family. And so we're praying for them that God refreshes them during these next several weeks. They'll be back with us at the beginning of August. Um, with us to preach this morning is our friend James Walden, who leads Riverside Community Church in Columbia, and uh, a church which James planted, helped plant 10 years ago. Um, this year they're just celebrating their 10th anniversary. Uh, I know it's been a little while. Uh, James has been with us a couple times before. He is with us at one of our Renew conferences. He's also been here on a Sunday morning. I think that was back when we were in the Marriott. If I remember correctly. So it's been a little while since James has been with us, but many of you may recognize him from those times. Last week when Todd Perkins was with us, I mentioned the blessing it was that he has begun heading up a local gathering for pastors um, right here in Greenville because um, it, it's meant that we can attend more, that we're building relationships with other local guys um, seeking to be equipped together and encouraging one another. The downside of that has been that I don't get to see James uh, nearly as much because he was hosting the regional group that we used to participate with um, when we used to travel to Columbia um, to be able to do that. Um, it's really the first one that, that we attended in the South Carolina area and began to build relationships with. So we're really grateful for that opportunity um, grateful for his leadership of it. And one of the things that I most appreciate about James, and I, I expect you'll see this in different ways this morning, is the wonderful um, blend that God has given him of both head and heart. Um, I think it's evident when you relate with him as well as, as he teaches. He's someone who likes to think deeply about big issues um, to wrestle with them, but it's also just as evident that he doesn't allow his study to remain a cerebral event. Uh, he isn't interested in ideas for ideas' sake, um, but to fuel his passion for Jesus and for his people. Um, James is personally affected by his study and tender-hearted in his leadership. So I'm uh, grateful that he would come and be with us this morning, and I'm looking forward to receiving from him today. One more thing I appreciate, I, as I've been writing and contacting these guys and communicating as we prepare for their time with us, I, I always throw in at the end, I ask, hey, are there any superlatives, um, any, any ways you'd like me to introduce you? Um, and none of the guys have been helpful at all with that, um, except for James. James has changed that a little bit. He said he would accept the exceedingly reverend James Walden. Or, you know, going with a Spanish flair, Jaime the Horrible. Um, so, if you would, please join me in welcoming Jaime as he comes and speaks to us. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate that very kind introduction. And it is, it is a great privilege to be here with you guys this, this morning. And as a uh, as Aaron said, I've had the privilege of worshiping with you before, back when you were at the Marriott, and man, I just thoroughly enjoyed 
worshiping with you. And I told Matt and Aaron, I said, there's just such a sweet spirit and uh, kindness and even and generosity. I remember I was looking at a particular book at the book table by John Piper. I was like, oh, I don't have that one. And Matt said, well, here, it's yours. And I was like, you're just going to give it to me? And he's like, yeah, just go ahead and take it. You know, so I just, that kind of generous, kind spirit. And on that note, I want to join my voice with Matt Rawlings and others to commend you as a congregation for uh, really supporting Matt Rawlings and his family on this sabbatical by sending them. That is something that too few churches do. And I understand it's kind of a culture shift to think about sabbatical, but it's a really important investment in him and his family. And I think you'll find it will be a great investment in your own congregation. So thank you for your, your kindness in that as well. Uh, well, part of our history not only involves us being able to connect together, to do events together through our partnership with Acts 29, um, but it also involved a church plant. You might recall that back at the, for those of you that were at the Renew um, retreat, uh, I was honored to be one of the speakers. Another speaker was Braden Greer, who's a mutual friend of ours, and we got to be as churches together to send the Greers to plant in the northeast side of Columbia. And... Um, Sadly, that church didn't pan out. About a year and a half in, uh, Braden just sort of was exhausted. And we kind of needed, it was obvious in, in conversation with our elders and with Matt and the leadership here, that really Braden needed an off-ramp. Um, and so we did that. And uh, I want to let you know, uh, I had lunch with Braden last week. He's doing really well. And the Lord is really kind and has blessed the Greers. And we're grateful for them. And we're grateful for this work of partnering together because as a network, of course, many church plants fail. This is sort of par for the course. Uh, we have to keep trying. And we know that God's at work in all of these efforts. And he's always bearing fruit. But here's the deal. It's costly. It co- I mean, in true spirit of redeeming grace form, you were very generous toward that plant. You gave money. Uh, Rawling, Matt and, and Aaron gave energy, personal energy and relationship. Some of you knew the Greers and invested in them. And all of that, I want you to know, it wasn't wasted energy, but it was energy that cost us. And so it kind of raises the question, if we are a church plant that wants to plant churches, that's one of the reasons why redeeming grace as I understand it, wants to enter the network of Acts 29. It's why I'm, and Riverside is in the network of Acts 29. We want to be about the business of multiplying disciples and congregations. Now, it's going to be costly. It's going to be hard. I mean, think about it. Church, just doing church is hard. I mean, doing care groups is, is often difficult. You have to figure out, what are we going to do with all these kids? And who's going to lead? And who's hosting again? And why do we do this? And Sunday mornings can be logistically heavy and burdensome. And why do we do church, let alone this task of multiplying churches, of building churches, and planting new churches? It's tough soil, too, that we're in. You know, Billy Graham famously said, America has just enough Jesus to be inoculated against the gospel. And if that's true of America, how much more so it's Bible Belt? And so it is tough ground. And what I want to do this morning is I want to answer that question, why do we do this? Why, <laughs> why are we doing this again? Uh, by looking at this passage uh, from, from Titus. So I'm going to read it uh, in a moment and then pray. But what I want to do is I want to look at this passage. It's Titus 2, 11 through 14, if you want to open up your Bibles. Um, and I want to read this passage in light of the whole uh, text of 
Titus's, the letter to Titus, Paul's letter to Titus. And so as a result, just be prepared. I hope you, I hope you, you got some energy from the break because uh, we're going to be going back and forth all over Titus, chapters 1, 2, and 3, as we consider kind of this gospel jewel that is verses 11 through 14 uh, in its setting. If you think of a, a ring and it's the diamond in its setting, the ring allows the diamond to be seen. There are actually two gospel jewels in this letter, but the setting, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, but the setting allows us to see its beauty. And so we're going to be looking at both the setting and the diamond itself, and as a result, kind of going back and forth. Uh, And what we'll find as we answer the question of why do we do this challenging and laborious work of of church and planting new churches, uh, what we'll find is that not only will we answer the the why we do it, but the how. In other words, we do church together and we plant new churches because we want to ever more deeply experience and express the gospel of God's grace and glory in Jesus Christ. That's why we do it. So that's kind of, there's the, there's the quick notes version. So if you want to tune out the rest of the sermon, you, you got it. Uh, but as we, as we look at why that is and why the, it is experiencing and expressing the gospel more deeply... Uh, that is also addressing the how we do it, how we do church, how we multiply churches and disciples is by experiencing the gospel more deeply and expressing the gospel more richly. So let's dive in, shall we? Would you pray with me? Well, actually, let's read the text and then we'll pray. Titus 2 verses 11 through 14 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people For his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears. And as Aaron commented, it would not just be our minds that are engaged, but our hearts. That even now, Lord, we would experience the gospel more deeply. And come to express it more fully. Lord, only you can do this work by the mighty spirit you've poured out on us. So spirit, we invite you to come and fill our hearts with the word of Christ. Dwell in us richly, O Lord. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, beginning with the why question. Why all of this labor, church life and church planting? And the answer, as we'll see in a moment, is to express or display what I'm going to call the beauty of God's gospel, the beauty of its grace and its glory. God uh, saved us for himself, we see in this passage. He saved us to be a people for himself, for his own possession, and he saved us for good works. A people who are zealous for good works, verse 14 We are, another way to put this is we are to live morally beautiful lives that are compelling to the world. 
Now, what's interesting, and the reason why I say that, why I say it's morally compelling to the world, you'll see more as we go through the passage. But the reason why I say that is because the virtues Paul highlights here would have been very familiar, not just to Titus, but to Crete. And not just to Crete, but the entire Greek culture. These virtues are, in fact, a a kind of classic triad of virtues or Greek ethical ideals that the culture itself would have clamored for and said, yes, this is the good life. Namely, as as he lists it out in verse 12, the gospel trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. That's the first virtue. In my relationship to myself, I'm self-controlled. To live a self-controlled life. And secondly, to live upright. My relationship to others, the word there is literally just or righteous. I am right in my relationships. I'm fair and good in how I treat other people. And then godly. In Paul's case, I have a right relationship with God. Or in the case of Greek virtues, with the gods. I live a pious life in relationship to my religion. And so this was the Greek ideal of the good life and would, and there, and would have been compelling to them that the church might look like that because it was the ideal the world was striving after. And so for that reason, I use the term, not just as the gospel true and good, but it's beautiful in that it's attractive. It's intended to be attractive to the world, to a watching world. Uh, you see that Paul, Paul is constantly, especially in Titus, connecting the truth of the gospel with the good life that flows from it. Look back in chapter 1 in the very opening of our, passage, of our, uh, of our letter. Paul says, after identifying himself, a servant and apostle of Jesus, he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. In other words, it's truth that comports with godliness, a truth that is consonant with, that that resonates with, a truth that yields godliness and is in harmony with godliness. Similarly, in chapter 2, verse 1, when he gives instructions to Titus about how to teach, look what he says in verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords, that same word there, with sound doctrine or healthy doctrine. Literally, it's healthy. And then you think, okay, so he's going to go on to expound the so-called doctrines of grace or talk about the Trinity or the doctrine of the atonement. No, he goes on to talk about the virtues of individuals in the congregation, their moral character. Right? If you look on, I mean, he goes, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Younger men, or sorry, likewise, they are to treat younger women. They are to teach them to be self-controlled, verse 5, pure and working at home. Verse 6, likewise, the younger men, self-controlled. You'll notice that the salvation that has come for all people transforms all people. It makes them virtuous people of deep moral character. The gospel trains us for that. 
And Titus, as a leader, I love this description that Paul gives him as, the, as, a, as a leader in Crete, setting the standards and examples. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. He says of Titus, show yourself in every regard to be a model of good works. You are to be a pattern not only of sound words, but sound way of life, a healthy way of life. You should be a role model. Contrast that with the bad leadership that was installed in the, at the churches in the island of Crete. If you jump up to chapter 1, look at verse 16. He's speaking here of these would-be leaders who are influencing the congregation with bad teaching and bad morals. In verse 16, it says, they profess to know God. That is, they claim to know the truth, but they deny him by their works. Their manner of life contradicts their claims to know Jesus. Does that sound familiar in the South? We're, we're all Christians, you know? They claim to know the truth. They claim to be truth-tellers, but their way of life contradicts, denies God. In fact, he goes on, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They cannot yield the fruit of the gospel of good works because they don't know it. They claim to know it, but they don't know it because truth always yields, uh, knowing truth yields fruit. Paul says something similar to Timothy. In 2 Timothy, he says, in the last days, it's going to be bad. People are going to be lovers of self. They're going to be arrogant, haughty. They're going to be cruel, abusers, harsh. They're going to be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then he says, they will, they will have the appearance of godliness, the appearance of religion. They will have an outward Christianity, but they will deny its power. And power there does not speak of the, of the sign gifts. That's not what Paul's addressing. When he says they deny its power, it's in the context of saying, listing their bad morals. They deny its morally transforming power. They deny the power of the gospel to transform life because their lives aren't transformed. So they have the form of Christianity, but a totally untransformed life. In contrast, the well-formed saint is to be ready for and devoted to good works. So jump with me to chapter 3, verse 1. Where Paul there enjoins Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities in the city, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And jump down to verse 8. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are excellent and profitable for people. They need to be ready for and devoted to good works. Why? Because they have been redeemed as a people for God, zealous for good works. And in this way, the church's moral beauty, its attractive character before a watching world, functions as a kind of apologetic for the gospel. It, it, it commends the gospel to outsiders, to skeptics, because of the morally beautiful way of life of its members. And this is exactly what Paul says in that list of sound doctrine in chapter 2. Look at verse 5, 
when he says how the, the older women are to teach the younger women to be self-controlled, to be kind and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled in the, in the culture. Or jump down to verses 8 and 9. Titus is to be a role model of sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say. And then likewise, uh, speaking of household servants, verse 10, they are not to steal but show all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. They, are to, they don't adorn the gospel because the gospel isn't already beautiful. They're like that ring showing off the beauty of the gospel. They are showing off the already beautiful gospel by their manner of life. And so on the screen behind me, you have a passage from Paul's letter to Timothy, where he explains this, that the role of the church uh, is to show off the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of the gospel. He says it this way, I am writing these things to you, Timothy, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. What he's saying there is, he's writing to Timothy in Ephesus, and in Ephesus, one of the great wonders of the world at the time was the temple of Artemis, this massive temple to the goddess of love. And in that temple, there, were, there was not only buttresses that supported the truth, is the metaphor here, defended it, grounded it. But there were these pillars that lifted up this large, gleaming marble roof that you could see miles away as you traveled toward Ephesus. That the role of the church isn't just to support and defend the truth, it's to show it off. It's to lift it high so that all could see the glory of the temple of God, the glory of God in Christ. And that glory is Christ himself, the mystery of our religion, the mystery of godliness, manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed by the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. So what Paul seems to be doing in all of these letters to Timothy and Titus is to argue that the virtues which the Greek world has so long idealized and sought after, self-control, godliness, uprightness, have finally come. But they have come only in the person of Jesus. They are found among his people and only them in their fullest and truest expression. That real virtue comes only from the gospel of Christ. And so to those who receive him. This is our vision at Riverside. It's that we would be a community of people who live together and individually compelling lives of such moral stature and power that the gospel shines through us to a world craving truth purity, integrity, and virtue. The world craves it. Don't be deceived. But that's easier said than done. Let's consider the realities and raw materials of Crete Titus is working with. Take a look at verses, chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. So jump with me to chapter 1, verse 10. <clears throat> Here's Paul... Paul's addressing, here, Titus, I sent you to go do this hard work of establishing these churches. Let me tell you just how hard it's going to be. Verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. That's a party I do not want to be a part of. 
They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They're teaching bad things and it's destroying families, right? Good teaching leads to, leads to health. Bad teaching destroys One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to myths, uh, to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, Nothing is pure, but both their minds and their conscience are defiled. And as we've seen, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. The Cretans, the people that occupied the island of Crete, in sharp contrast to the Greek ethical ideals uh, of their culture, uh, were not known for their virtue. They were, in fact, known for unscrupulous business practices, especially as liars. In fact, a Cretan was a byword for a liar. Uh, Polybius, who was a second century before Christ historian, says um, Cretans are the only people on earth in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. This was their reputation at this point in history. And the reason for that reputation, the reason that they were known as liars and, and scoundrels who would do anything for a buck, It's because not that they were an island of pathological liars, but because they were theological liars. They made this audacious claim. There was a legend that hailed from the island of Crete that Zeus, who's like top dog of the Greek pantheon, Zeus died and is buried in the mountainous caves of the island of Crete. And for a small fee, you can come visit his grave. It was brilliant for religious tourism. And they made a lot of money. But as you can imagine, it made a lot of pious worshipers of Zeus angry. Because they were saying, your God is dead. And we have his corpse. Right? And so it was an impious lie. It was an ungodly lie. They lied about God. And the quote, in this case, Zeus, the quote that... Uh, Paul here cites is from an ancient poet named Epimenides. And here's here's the full context. They fashioned a tomb for thee, O holy and high one, speaking to Zeus. The Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But thou art not dead, thou livest and abidest forever. For in thee we live and move and have our being. Paul quotes that again somewhere else. It's not just a generalization then regarding truth-telling. This is a great impiety. They claim to lie about Zeus for a buck. Their bad theology, in other words, is is demonstrated, it's displayed by their, their unscrupulous actions. And what Paul wants to do here is he wants to take this notoriously unscrupulous crowd and see a very different reputation emerge from the island of Crete in the churches. A reputation rooted in a theology of truth. A reputation rooted in the God who, as Paul writes earlier in this letter, cannot lie. The God who cannot lie and does not lie. Secondly, the challenge is not only bad leadership, it's it's an unfruitful congregation. 
with bad leaders or would-be influencers influencing the congregation with bad teaching and bad moral examples, you can imagine how that corrupted the people and the life of its congregation. In particular, they were lacking in virtue. And so in 2, 1 through 10, as we've seen, Paul instructs to Titus to shore up the virtue of the congregation, build up their character, grounding it in the gospel. Did you notice the prevalence of the word self-controlled? Old men are to be self-controlled. Older women are to not be slaves to wine. Self-controlled. The younger women are to be self-controlled. The younger men especially need to be self-controlled. It's the same word. And they are to relate rightly to their neighbors being upright as those who profess to know the truth. That is, as those who profess to be godly. But they were also lacking in good works. And so Paul says there, as we saw in verse 1 and 2 of, of chapter 3, remind them to be careful to do good works. They're to be ready and willing. In fact, jump down to verse 14. It's the last exhortation in chapter 3 Paul gives to Titus. And let our people learn, they've got to learn this, to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. They've got to devote themselves to this work and it, because it's not happening. The task of the church is to bring glory to God by being of sound character and doing good works before a watching world. Here, Paul is just handing on the tradition of Jesus. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? It's on the screen behind me, where Jesus tells the disciples, this is what you're about. This is who you are. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its taste, how will its saltiness be restored? If it loses its character, then what good is it? You're no, you, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and then put it under a basket, but on a stand, so that it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is, this is the point of the church and the world, the character of our congregations, the visibility of our good works in our cities, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work. In our own homes, there's nothing worse. I hear it from pastors' kids. I hear it from Christians' kids. Like, yeah, my dad was one thing up front in the pulpit, but at home was different. Or my parents attended church every Sunday. We were very religious, but there was nothing about our family life that was dictated by the gospel. There was no character of the gospel in how we related to each other. The, 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 the damage of that witness is profound. And it's contradictory to what Paul here is urging the church, the whole church, to embody. A character that lines up with the gospel and how we do life. It's elemental to our witness to express the gospel in the world in this way. But how do we do this? How do we remain salty and how do we shine in the darkness? And the solution, thirdly, is gospel training. It's so interesting that the gospel teaches us to renounce ungodliness. Look again at verse 12. The, gospel, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. I love that. It's not the law of Moses that trains us to deny ungodliness, to say no to ungodliness. The law of Moses is good, and it's true, and it's beautiful. 
but it can't do this. All law can do is tell us the standard and then condemn us when we don't meet it. But the gospel not only says, this is the beautiful life, the good life, and I'm going to give you the grace, as we sang earlier, to do it. I'm going to give you the power to do it. Grace trains us. On the screen behind me, you also see there's kind of a, a little outline there that shows you how what the gospel does is reverses the broken character of Cretans. Their own prophets said they're always liars. They lie about God especially. They're ungodly. Secondly, they are vicious beasts. It was, a, it was a legend that there were no wild animals in the island of Crete. It was famous for that, except its human inhabitants <laughs> who bit and devoured each other. And, in, and anyone who would come, uh, uh, a sucker uh, for, uh, would come and, and, be, and basically be robbed. Uh, idle bellies. They're lazy gluttons, right? Look at the reverse. What does the gospel teach us? To live sensibly, to live self-controlled, not as lazy gluttons, but disciplined lives. We have a good relationship with ourself. Two, we live justly. We live in a right relationship. We're not vicious beasts with each other. We're kind and compassionate with one another. And finally, we're not liars about God. We We don't claim to know him and then deny him with our works. We live godly lives. So the gospel does exactly, it meets us exactly where we need to be met in instructing us. So how do you make a true, good, and beautiful church? To begin with, you need good leaders. You need good leaders. Jerome in the fourth century who translated the Vulgate to, it was the Latin translation of the Bible so the Western church could read it in its own language. He writes, many build churches nowadays, their walls and pillars of glowing marble, their ceilings glittering with gold, their altars studded with jewels, yet to the choice of Christ's ministers, no heed is paid. But look at what Paul, what, look what Paul writes to Titus to do. It's the very first thing he tells him to do in chapter 1, in verse 5 and following. This is why I left you in Crete so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. We'll stop there for a second. This is the kind of characters that Paul says you have to first and foremost put good leaders in place. How do you get good leaders off an island like Crete that's known for everyone being liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons? <laughs> well, you've got you to shape them with the gospel. You have to continue to instruct and be patient. You have to give time to develop uh, a few good men who can then lead the church. And these men are to be well taught. Look at verse 9. He, this elder or overseer, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He has been taught and he gets it. He holds to it. As Paul told Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Entrust this good, sound gospel teaching to them. Let them be shaped by it. And then they have this proven character that's proven not just when they're up front somewhere on a Sunday or on a Wednesday uh, 
care group gathering, their, their lives are consistent throughout in their families and work. They have a good reputation with outsiders because they're known and experienced. Now, you'll note that the, the, the qualifications for elders here are not exhaustive. They're not exhaustive. I mean, one of the things I want in a shepherd for, for, for our church would be a man who prays a lot, a man who's prayerful. You guys, would you guys agree? Like, prayer's probably pretty good. Prayer's not listed here because Paul's not being exhaustive. Paul's being selective. What's striking is, is again, he selects what kind of virtues? The kind of virtues the Greek world would have resonated with. Look, look at verse 8. He must, not be, he must be hospital, a lover of good. Self-control, there's that word from verse 12 on our, on, in our passage. Upright, same word from verse 12. And holy, which is a synonym of godly. They are to be, to uphold the Greek virtues. Why? Because they themselves are to, to be attractive to the world. I love what Mark Dever says. Mark Dever is a pastor of a church in, in D.C., and he says, the point of leadership in the church is to bring glory to God by commending the truth to outsiders. That's the whole point of leadership in the church. It's not to put on programs. It's not to make sure Sunday morning runs smoothly. I mean, all that's very, very important. But the primary purpose of good leadership is to commend the truth to a watching world. You ever thought about that? In their own personal lives and in their leadership. Because their leadership will reduplicate their manner of life. They shape others through good teaching. As we saw in verses 9, continue in verse 9, they themselves are well taught, and they are so well taught that, as he goes on to say, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, and rebuke those who contradict it. And as we've already seen in verses 10 and following, this, these insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers are to be silenced, verse 11, because they're upsetting households. They are to be rebuked because they are, they, are, they are denying the truth of God by their manner of life. They are to be corrected consistently, patiently, but firmly. The remedy to bad behavior, in other words, is good teaching. The remedy to bad behavior is good gospel teaching over and over and over and over again. But, and this is an important but, good teaching by good men. Some of you are in that category, and the Lord's calling you to be a leader in, in, among his people. If you feel that tug, I encourage you to keep praying over that. We need a few good men. We need men who will give themselves, and women, who will play the, this role uh, as in leading the church in a variety of ways, who are going to be faithful and godly. We need leaders who will set that example and invest in the church. Alistair Begg said that the greatest sermon Charles Spurgeon ever preached was his life. It wasn't, he, he, and if you know much about Charles Spurgeon, he preached a lot of really good sermons. But it was his manner of life and how he conducted himself as a pastor, how he conducted himself as a president of a Bible college, of, of an orphanage, of how he conducted himself as a father and a husband and a neighbor and a friend. That was his most important sermon. And likewise, these leaders, their most important attribute is their qualifications uh, as, of character. You'll note that the character qualifications that we read here were mundane. 
There's nothing extraordinary about them. They're the qualifications that are for every Christian called to, called to aim for. There's nothing here unique. And I point that out simply to make this, this, this one point. We say this all the time in the church, and we shouldn't say it. We say, what well, leaders are held to a higher standard. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that is not true. They are held to the same standard every Christian is. That's why they can be examples. I think what we mean when we say they're held to a higher standard, we, we're paraphrasing James when he says not many of us should teach because we, be uh, we will be judged more strictly. Yes, leaders will be judged more strictly, but more strictly to the same standard. There's not a higher standard. What happens when we see our leaders as held, having a different standard than us? They no longer become an example for us. Right? We say, well, yeah, of course he's doing that. He's a, he's a pastor. Pastors are weird. I don't need to imitate that guy's way of life. Right? They're hyper-spiritual. They're super-spiritual. And we immediately dismiss their example. When, in fact, the whole point of leadership is to commend the truth to outsiders by living an, example, an exemplary life that the whole church should follow. We'll get more of that in a moment. It leads us to the second point, gospel-shaped community. The community has got to be shaped uh, uh, by the gospel through one another. How does the gospel train us? That's the question. Grace trains us to say no to ungodliness, but how does it actually do that? The answer is through one another. Through godly leadership, first and foremost, but then through one another. Through older men setting an example for the younger men. For older women teaching and training the younger women. It is, if, if, if the gospel is the engine that trains us and shapes us, then think of relationships as the instrument, as the wheels that make it go. We have to be in these relationships in the congregation where, where the gospel shapes us. Because I might know that as a father, it's my job to spiritually lead my household with humility, with self-sacrifice and love. Okay, I know, I know that intellectually, but I don't know how to do that. If, I didn't, if you didn't have a father that, that exemplified that, it's really difficult to just kind of know what that looks like. Because you try and you fail and you feel embarrassed and shame and then you kind of quit. You do a family devotional and like the three-year-old's throwing goldfish at you. And you're just like, well, okay, why am I doing this again? Right? And so it's a tough, tough work that we're called to do as parents. And if you didn't have a godly father or a godly mother, it's very difficult to go, what does my role look like? And I thank God that one of the, the men in my life was my pastor and then became my mentor. I, got to, I get to spend years with him. I got to watch him with his family because I spent the night at his house during breakfast when he was grumpy and had a coffee yet and how he loved his family. I got to see him at dinner over and over and over and over again, how he conducted himself with his family. I got to see him wrestle with his kids. I got to see him both literally wrestle with them as a dad playing with his kids and emotionally. I got to see how he lived that out. And when I became a father, I just sort of had an intuition Guys, we have to have real-life moral examples. We should read the lives of the saints and great missionaries. Those are awesome and inspiring and powerful. But you can't do it by books alone. you got to be in relationships. And I want to commend you that are older in the, in the congregation. Younger people are dying for this. They are dying for someone to come alongside them and say, Hey, I know it's hard. Here's what we did well. Here's what we did badly. Here's what we do differently. 
And I'm not saying if you're older, if you're, if you're, I think, how did you phrase it? Circling 50, I saw in the bulletin. If you're circling 50 uh, and above, you know, like, don't think you've got to come up with a nine-month discipleship game plan for someone. Just have them over for dinner and just ask them, how are you doing? Like, what's hard? What's it like now for you? Here's what we learned. You know, people need relationships. And for you that are younger and looking for that, don't wait for someone to approach you. Be bold. When Stacey and I were first, when we were newlyweds, we literally zoned in on couples we liked. We saw how the husbands and wives related and what we liked about it and those we enjoyed. Like when a man really enjoyed his wife, I was attracted to that guy. Like I want to know more about that guy. I want to know more about his marriage, you know? And we just sought him. We targeted him. <laughs> like we're going to be friends with them. This is what we're going to do. And that's, that's what you need to do. You kind of got to be proactive to, to seek out these relationships because that's how the gospel changes us. It's in those relationships where we see the gospel played out in real lives. Lives that are commendable and worthy. Not that we imitate every detail of someone else's life, but the pattern, the pattern of intentionality and love and self-sacrifice. And I see I'm going over my time here. Um, Last point. By the way, I do have to share this. this. How cool is this? So in the third century, there was an apologist and a theologian by the name of Origen. And he was debating a skeptic and critic of Christianity by the name of Celsus. And, and Origen had used this mocking of the tomb of Zeus that hailed from Crete against Celsus to go, I heard your God's dead, my condolences. <laughs> All right. Well, what Celsus does is quite clever. He turns that myth on its head and he says, well, just like um, the legends of men who became so great in, in, in the later myths, they become gods like Hercules and Dionysus. So is your Jesus. He's just a man that later legends so blew up that he became a god. Sound familiar? There's no new arguments under the sun. And this is the third century, Celsus argued this. But I love, love, love Origen's response. His response to Celsus is, your, your Jesus is just a man that became a god later, and he's in a tomb too. Celsus, Origen said, can Dionysus or Hercules point to a people who have been reformed in morals and have become better as a result of their life and teaching? Because I can. I can point you to my church. Jesus is alive and well, and he is on the move. <laughs> and I bet you guys have these stories here in your congregation, just like we do, but don't you want more of those stories? Don't you want more places we can point to and go, look, Jesus is alive. Look at the morally transformed lives. Look at the power of the gospel at work. That's why we do what we do. Finally, gospel-shaped mission. Here's the deal. We preach good works. Um, we preach that we must do good works. Look at verse chapter, jump down to chapter 3, verses 3 and following. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's not a pretty picture, but it's an accurate one. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, a renewal of the Holy Spirit, and be poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by grace, not works, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on it so that we might be careful to devote ourselves to good works. There's the brilliant logic of the gospel. But we are to keep pointing good works out. We are to stir each other up to good works. We're to remind one another of good works. Sometimes we, we argue that if good works appears in a sermon, it's not a gospel sermon. But Paul would differ from us on that. He would say, no, like you are to commend good works, remind them to do good works, stir them up. We are to stir one another up, right? The author of Hebrews says that we are to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. We're constantly be provoking one another. How can I be a better husband? How can I be a better father? How can I be a better neighbor and a coworker? How can I be, how can we serve this city better? Like that should be a constant question stirring in us because we are a people redeemed to be zealous for good works, Zealous, like, what can we do next? This is great. This is awesome. We're showing off the glory of God by our good works. Let's do more. And I know the gospel of grace alone sometimes seems to undercut the gospel's call for good works. There's a kind of twisted logic there. If we're saved apart from works, then I don't need to do good works. But that's a great distortion And I think no one saw this more clearly than the 16th century reformer Martin Luther, who saw that we are liberated from fear of judgment. We are liberated from the anxiety of self-salvation. Man, I got to do good works because I got to get in. You're freed from that in Christ because you're justified by grace. Already justified, already righteous. So now you can focus on loving your neighbor. You have no ulterior motive. I'm not trying to get into heaven by loving you. I'm already in. I get to love you freely and generously. Or as Martin Luther famously put it, God doesn't need your good works. He doesn't need them. But your neighbor does. So let's love freely and generously as the rich people we are. Right? We we love freely because we're secure. Verse 7 there of chapter 3 says, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. Heirs have a great, when you're an heir of a fortune, you just look at the world differently. I don't know what that's like on an earthly plane. (laughs) I don't have a rich uncle who's like, hey, by the way, you have $14 million waiting. But I imagine that changes your perspective on life. You know, to quote Forrest Gump, well, that's one less thing I have to worry about. Money, right? Uh, But we are all that. Because of the grace of God, apart from works, you, if you have faith in Christ, trusting in him, you are an heir to, you won the, you won the the cosmic lottery. I mean, like, you're the richest person in the universe. You are co-heirs with Christ. So you have this total certain hope that's that's waiting on you. This is why Paul addresses what he says there in verse 13 of chapter 2, our our passage, waiting for our blessed hope. We're waiting for it because it's certain. We're not just like, fingers crossed, man, I hope it comes. Like, I know it's coming. I can wait patiently. I can be eager. It's coming. And so we can serve with reckless abandon and love. We know ourselves to have a future and a hope despite all of our current struggles and weaknesses because the God who cannot lie has promised it to us in Jesus. And he cannot lie to you, brothers and sisters, and he will not. 
He's promised it to you. Fear not, little flock. It's pleased the Father to give you his kingdom. Moreover, as heirs, you have a new identity. You're no longer outsiders, strangers, orphans without a dad. You are the children of a God, God adopted. You are loved. You are now royals, so live like it. There's a story that the late queen mother of the British royal family used to prepare her daughters, Princess Elizabeth, now Queen Elizabeth, and Princess Margaret, before a party or some official visit by saying, royal children have royal manners. See, they didn't have to have royal manners in order to become royal children. They already were royal children. They just had to behave accordingly. Well, likewise, God in Christ says to you, you are my dear son, my beloved daughter. Enjoying all the rights and privileges that attend the royal line of Christ. You are full members of my holy house. Now, live like it. Royal children have royal manners. Of course, we have to be honest. Sometimes our manners are less than royal, as is our congregation. And this is where it's so important that we not just rehearse these truths in our head, but we experience them. Look again. Look again at verses 1 and through 5. We are, to, we are to speak evil to no one. Verse 2, avoid quarreling. Why? Because verse 3, we ourselves were once this way. We were annoying and hard to love. To be honest, I still am. We were, we were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy and hate. We hated others and we were hated by others. And yet God didn't hate us. He loved us. And I love the word that's translated loving kindness there. It's literally the word philanthropy. God loved mankind and he loved you among mankind. And he showed his philanthropy in sending his son. And so now, because you've experienced philanthropy, you've been on the receiving end, you know how to give it. It's important that we not just see good morals practiced, but we experience them practiced toward us. You know this if you have kids, or if you are a kid, which is all of us. Uh, you've experienced this. You know that the most shaping environment was your home. Because there not only did you see behaviors patterned and displayed, you experienced them, them done to you, whether good or bad. You know how to do good because you've been treated well. You know how to love because you've been loved. You know how to be merciful because you've been shown mercy. And the more you experience the grace of God, which gives us this philanthropy, the more we lean back into this reality that the grace of God has appeared, the more we understand and are able to practice these good works. We learn to do what's good because it's been done to us. As you have received mercy, you're better able to show mercy. The more you receive mercy and the more you realize you need it, the more merciful you are. The more you receive forgiveness of sins and you know and we know we need it. We need it this morning. We need the forgiveness of our sins. The more you receive and embrace that, the more freely you forgive your enemies because you know what you've been forgiven. I mean, think about the person in your life right now that is the most difficult to live with, the most difficult to forgive. Now imagine yourself in their place, their callousness, their indifference, their hard heart, their cruelty, their anger. Now imagine, remember yours and how you were hated, but God loved you. 
And as you experience that love afresh, you'll have strength from the Spirit to love even those hard persons to love in your life. As we receive love and embrace it despite our failings, we're better able to love and embrace others despite their failings because God loved us despite ours. The Apostle Paul so loved because he persecuted the church, was a blasphemer of God, but then he could say, the Son of God loved me and gave himself up for me. In the middle of my rebellion, in the middle of my hate, he loved me. Do you know that love? It's how the gospel works. Are you experiencing it now? Are you experiencing this grace? Is it training you? Is it shaping you? Which is just another way of saying, are you experiencing the crucified and resurrected Christ right now who is in our midst, active through his word, present by his Holy Spirit? He's here. He loves you. He wants you to know his love even more. I want to close with a prayer from the Puritans. This is from the Valley of Vision. So I invite you to to, to bow your head with me and just pray along these wise words from another pilgrim. Blessed Lord Jesus, no human mind could conceive or invent the gospel, acting in eternal grace. Thou art both its messenger and message, lived out on earth through infinite compassion, applying thy life to insult, injury, death, that I might be redeemed ransomed, freed. Blessed be thou, O Father, for contriving this way. Eternal thanks to thee, O Lamb of God, for opening this way. Praise everlasting to thee, O Holy Spirit, for applying this way to my heart. Glorious Trinity, impress the gospel on my soul until its virtue diffuses every faculty. Let it be heard, acknowledged, professed, felt. Teach me to secure this mighty blessing. Help me to give up every darling lust, to submit heart and life to its command, to have it in my will, controlling my affections, molding my understanding. Amen, Lord. May it be.